Turn your Bibles to Matthew, Matthew chapter 23. We are continuing to consider the context leading up to the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, and we are looking at the sense of what Jesus was dealing with in the context of the Pharisees and uh, who they are and the scribes and who they are and how he would teach the importance of what would take place in near future times uh, to uh, the disciples themselves coming up in chapter 24. And we've noted how the Lord Jesus was dealing with uh, some very... uh, Contrarian spirits, I think is the way that, that I should put it. These men of, of real contrarian spirit. Everything that the Lord Jesus wanted to teach and everything that he would speak before them, they were always trying to come back at him time and time again. And we noticed, uh, not last week, Scott did a wonderful job uh, preaching last week. The week before that, we noticed, though, Uh, In these woes, there was a sense that you could see even what Martin Luther went through when he nailed the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg church door and how he was trying to outline a context for discussion and to show that there were real serious issues in the church that needed to be discussed. And, of course, the Lord Jesus was uh, a reformer way before Martin Luther ever thought about being one, even though he probably didn't think about himself that way. Uh, But the Lord Jesus was here, in a sense, putting these discussion points out before the religious leaders of his day, and they are really unwilling to have these discussions. And it's come to this place later in the ministry of the Lord Jesus, and this is in his his last week here uh, before his, uh, his death and burial and resurrection, that he's preaching to these Pharisees and he's called them out. And here in chapter uh, 23, verses 13 to the end of the chapter, verses 13 to 36, he's dealing with them by saying, but woe to you, but woe to you. And uh, I, I brought that point home. Scott did a great job in Jude bringing that point home, this declarative statement of woe to you. It's, it's judgment, uh, but it's not thoughtless judgment. There's anguish in this judgment. There's anguish of him making this appeal. Woe to you. Why won't you stop? Why won't you listen? This is the kind of appeal that the reformers were making in their day. Woe to you in the church. Woe to you. Why won't you stop? Why won't you listen? Why won't you hear? It's not just hear the message, but why won't you even stop to listen? Why do you keep going the way you're going? Why do you keep marching forward as if nothing's happening. And here the Lord Jesus is making this appeal to them. Stop, stop, whoa. Judgment is coming. Stop. Listen. Give ears to this. It's as though he's making this final appeal to their souls. For he knows in coming days he will be put on that cross. He will be going to that very death. We discussed these woes in context. 
there was a sense of the woe of them shutting off the kingdom of heaven to people by the way they lived and the way they taught. He called them hypocrites. They are simply actors in a play, but they are not real, true-hearted believers. Verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you are. Those are bold statements you remember, right? He says, you fools and blind men, verse 17, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? This is here where we begin to look at the consideration of what was secondary versus what was significant. We said they sought to confuse minds concerning the significant versus the secondary. We ended with the primary matters of sacrificial worship. The temple versus the gold of the temple. The altar versus the offering on the altar. That was verses 16 to 19. Verses 20 to 22. Therefore, whoever swears by the altar swears by both the altar and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple swears by both the temple and by him who dwells within it. And whoever swears by heaven swears by both the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. The truth is that the item is only a type of representation. The significant focus is on the presence of God. See, they were mixing all that up. They were thinking the gold had something to do with it. They were thinking this particular item had something to do with it. And he's saying, no, 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 no. You guys are looking at physical things. And he's about to lead them into a place to see that's your whole problem. You're looking at the broad context of worship and you're looking at the physical things and you're not dealing with the very presence of God, who God is and what he's doing in the context of our souls. And we were left with this observation. The physical item of religious display should never replace the spiritual reality it is meant to convey. The physical item of religious display should never replace the spiritual reality it is meant to convey. Well, the Lord Jesus moves them from this context of the primary matters of sacrificial worship to the primary matters of first fruit worship. Remember, they're taking the secondary thing, making it the main thing, and moving the significant, the primary, out of the way. You know the little phrase, keep the main thing the main thing, right? Lord Jesus says, you guys are taking the main thing and you're removing it and replacing it with the secondary thing. You've taken God out of sacrificial worship and you've replaced God with the physical item of the gold or the altar, not with the meaning of those things and how they pertain to God himself, who he is, and what he is doing. As Calvin said, we're good at having 
our hearts be idle factories. Idle factories. See, they're producing these idols, but they're actually taking things that God gave them and twisting them and misrepresenting them. And they've done that with the primary sacrificial worship. Well, secondly, under this context, the primary matters of first fruit worship, verse 23 and 24. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier provisions of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind gods who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. What does he mean here? Well, they were very particular to give of the first fruits from even the smallest items of the garden. They were very particular to give of the first fruits from even the very smallest items of the garden. One writer says, The Pharisees evidently took the practice very seriously and carried it through in minute detail. They paid to the Lord a tenth of small garden plants like mint and dill and cumin. This indicates a determination to fulfill the tithe regulations with minute accuracy. In Luke's gospel, he records it this way. He says, But woe to you Pharisees, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb. Whatever they had, the first fruit of it, even the little smallest of herbs, they would make sure they would count the little herbs. Now, you, you get the picture now. They're going to count the little herbs and say, oh, I got a hundred of these little herbs, so I have to give ten. Let me make sure I pluck them just right to get the right ten out of the smallest of the little things. Now, the Lord Jesus wasn't against their accuracy. Fine, fair enough, be accurate. Fine, fair enough, give that way. Fine, fair enough, it is the tenth. You're doing proper. But how they're being judged is that even though they're so meticulous with these little things, he says they were not so meticulous regarding the weightier matters of the law. See, there are weightier matters. There are things that are of greater importance than some things. It's like when you're parenting children and people say to you, be careful what you get upset about. Because if you get upset about everything equally, then your child will not be able to distinguish versus one matter that might be insignificant versus another that's not. You're going to ground your child for a month for spilling a drink on the floor? And then ground your child for a month when they leave the house when they're not supposed to? Wait, hang on a second. I spilt a drink on the floor. I get grounded a month. I leave the house when I'm not supposed to. I get grounded a month. Are those, are those equal? I'm just using that as an illustration. But you see, he's saying there are weightier matters. You guys are real good at getting to the little small matter of the law here, but there's some weightier matters you're not so good with, like justice, 
Proverb 21.3, to do righteousness and justice is desired by the Lord more than sacrifice. That's their law. That's their wisdom literature. He's quoting it, in a sense, back to them. Not literally. Mercy, Micah 6.8, he has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Faithfulness, Proverbs 28.20. A faithful man will abound with blessings, but he who makes haste to be rich will not go unpunished. Now that's interesting. Because this is one of the things that the Lord Jesus really cracked down on these Pharisees about in Mark chapter 7, verses 9 through 13. He was also saying to them, this is Jesus speaking to them, you are experts at setting aside the commandment of God in order to keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother. And he who speaks evil of father and mother is to be put to death. But you say... If a man says to his father or his mother, whatever I have that would help you has already been given to God. You no longer permit him to do anything for his father or his mother, thus invalidating the word of God by your tradition. It's interesting. They can get the smallest little herb and tithe it, but not help their father and their mother. Now, which do you think God would be more pleased in? You think God would really be that upset if you helped your father and your mother and you missed a sprig of herb in tithing it? Well, they didn't get that sprig. The idea is so right in our faces. This is how we are in our very hearts. We miss the weightier matters. Sometimes we want to be so precise in every little thing that we miss the weightier matter. This is one of the forms of the legalism of the Pharisees. Making sure everybody is precise in my way. Making sure everyone is precise exactly how I perceive and interpret them to be precise. I want to have them be my way. Jesus said, no, you guys are missing the way to your matter. You guys, you ought to be helping your father and your mother. You could plan ahead and tithe whatever herb you wanted to, but you ought to be helping your father and your mother. And you shouldn't teach others not to do so. Don't teach a person, make sure you get every, scri- uh, every little sprig of, of dill, every little sprig of that herb, but not take care of their father and their mother. He says, you see why he's saying you're, you're making twice the sons of hell as you are yourselves? Because what do followers generally do? They take something to the nth degree further than what the leader intended. It happens in church history all the time. He's saying you're going even further than your father the devil might even think. That's pretty severe. You guys are going to be creating people or or making people twice as much the son of hell as you are? 
They're taking these matters of the first fruit and they're overemphasizing the secondary as opposed to emphasizing the significant. What's at the heart of the matter? Love your neighbor as yourself. Treat your father and your mother with respect. Even if they need some help, he says, why wouldn't you help them? Furthermore, they were causing perpetual contradictions between, uh, or excuse me, perceptual contradictions between two of God's commands. Yet Jesus taught them there is no contradiction. One may obey God in the tithe, even with sacrifice, but they are to care for their parents because God requires them to. Both are true. They're trying to make distinction where no distinction is necessary. They're trying to make a dividing line where no dividing line is necessary. They're trying to be so precise in one thing that they're forgetting the weightier matter of the law. To charge someone with missing a sprig of the herb and yet to tell them not to help their neighbor? There's so many great contradictions in that. Why do they have this contradiction? It's because of the hardness of their heart. They sought to look good on the outside, but on the inside they were like dead men. We have to understand that righteousness comes from the inside first then is worked out towards God and others. Jesus is starting his argument against them and it will come very clearly in verse 25 that they flaunted an outward false righteousness. And think about his concluding illustration here in verse 24. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. <laughs> That is a little bit funny, isn't it? Can you imagine people actually trying to swallow a camel, but you're worried about a gnat? I'm going to swat at the gnat, and all the while i got this big camel in my mouth. I'm choking on it. I'm going to get that gnat. We'd think that person's crazy, right? This is how you guys are. You're so concerned about this little thing here that you've missed the way to your matter. And so you're going to try to strain this gnat out of your drink while all the while you're swallowing a big old fat camel with two humps. Furthermore, the issue is that even the gnat is unclean. One writer says Jesus pictures them as straining out the gnat, the point being that this little organism was unclean, Leviticus 11.41, and therefore should not be consumed. But these same people gulped down the camel, the largest of the beasts normally found in Palestine. You're so busy trying to tell us what's clean and unclean that even you swallowing the little bitty thing, you're still unclean. Well, observe this. The doctrines of men always lead to self-worship against God and self-centeredness against your neighbor. The doctrines of men always lead 
to self-worship against God and self-centeredness against your neighbor. When we're trying to make our own doctrines and we're trying to work out our own doctrines, ultimately what we do is, is we bring up doctrines that are actually against God himself. That makes no sense to try to do that. And yet that's how crazy our sinfulness drives us to this point that we're going to be against God. And furthermore, it causes us to be self-centered against our neighbors. We're not loving God with all our heart, our soul, our mind, and strength because we're trying to find our own way to God the way we want to do it. And we're not loving our neighbor either. And you want to talk about solving the world's problems, think about it. Everybody's so focused on let's just be happy with each other and everybody coexist. Well, there's a problem that's not being solved here. We don't realize and don't own up to the fact that we're sinners. We can't solve that problem in and of ourselves. And actually what we do in our sin is we make it worse. We kick against God even more and more and more in our sin. And we treat our neighbors worse because we're self-centered. It takes a changed heart from the inside out. This brings us to letter C. The primary matters of ceremonial worship. They were focused on the outside versus a proper focus on the inside. Verses 25 to 26. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first you clean the inside of the cup and of the dish, so that the outside of it may become clean also. This idea of the ceremony of the washing of the cup, to clean it out. He said, you guys are doing this all backwards. They were more concerned with what people saw them do rather than with what was in their mind and their hearts. Let, let me just make this clean. Let, let me just kind of scrub this on the outside and make it clean. And so people will look at it on the shelf and see that's a clean cup. You ever gotten a phone call from somebody someone and they were going to come over to the house and you weren't planning on anybody coming to the house and you start shoving stuff in places and you're going to kind of keep them in one area of the house and that one area looks really clean but you just shoved stuff in other places so nobody really knew all the stuff that you put somewhere else Jesus called them robbers not because they owned a cup or a dish, but because of the way they procured those items. They took care of those items from their own way, their own purpose, and they only cleaned the outside of them. Even here, this has a sense, once again, of them wanting to honor with their lips, but their heart is way away from me. The Old Testament prophets preach this against them. Jesus quotes it to them, not only in Mark 
7, but in Matthew chapter 15. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. You're only doing the outside. You're not dealing with the inside. Number 4, verses 28 to 29. They sought to appear clean before God and men, but they were dead men walking. They sought to appear clean before God and men, but they were dead men walking. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, verse 27, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. And say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? We have to notice, first of all, that this was concerning an Old Testament law when it was dealing with the very tombs themselves. It was a law regarding the burial of corpses. Numbers 19.11, the one who touches the corpse of any person shall be unclean for seven days. There was a sense in which as that law was put forward and there were these tombs that were kind of hollowed out in different places and the bones of family members or the bodies of family members were put in there and those bones were left in there. Jews needed to know when they traveled where these graves were so that they did not encounter any remains of corpses and would be considered unclean. Think about them having to travel back to the temple and go to temple worship. If they had been around these corpses or they had touched these corpses, they would have been, uh, been considered unclean. So over time, people started keeping, keeping up with these rocks and tombs by whitewashing the outer stone. It became a marker. When you saw a whitewashed stone, you knew that was a tomb and you didn't need to go near it. As one writer says, this would signify to travelers not to stop in that area or certainly not to go in that cave. Well, Jesus brought forward this truth that no matter what the outside of these tombs looked like, they were still filled with dead men's bones. You could whitewash the outside of that tomb and make it a marker and make it pretty and make it clean, and you can make everybody know what it is, but you weren't changing what it actually is. It's a tomb with dead men's bones in it. Then he turned and he applied that to the lives of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. No matter how clean they looked on the outside, it did not change the fact that they were dead sinners on the inside. He goes so far as to call them lawless. Did you catch that? He called them lawless. Now what were these men supposed to be? The teachers of the law. The scribes of the law. 
They were supposed to be the lawful ones. And Jesus says you're lawless. In essence, he's saying you're hypocrites. You're pretenders. You talk about the law, but you don't truly love the law and the essence of the law because you don't love the God of the law. You love yourselves. You want to raise yourselves up to look good in front of people, but you're not actually changed on the inside. leave you with this observation for this section. Antinomianism can be revealed when we live the law misinterpreted. Antinomianism can be revealed when we live the law misinterpreted. You see, these men wouldn't have said that they were anti-law. Antinomian is antinomos, which is anti-law or against the law. They would have described themselves as antinomian. They would have described themselves as law teachers and lawful people. And he said, no, you're lawless. And how are they lawless? Because they misinterpreted the law. And they lived the law according to their own interpretation and not God's. It means we have to be very careful when we command people to do something according to God's word. When we command people to do something according to God's word, we have to be very careful to interpret God's word thoughtfully. Or otherwise, we'll bind their conscience to something that God never intended their conscience to be bound to. Number five. Verses 29 to 33. They sought to appear different from their ancestral roots. They sought to appear different from their ancestral roots. The wickedness of their hearts goes so far as they deceive themselves. And this is what sinners do. The same sin that these scribes and Pharisees are guilty of here is the same sins we're guilty of. We try to deceive ourselves and say, I'm a good person. I'm really decent. I'm, I'm really nice. I'm not as bad as that other person. Look, I didn't murder anybody. I haven't done that awful thing. I mean, if we go back and we look at my family history, there's some real nutcases in my family background. And I didn't go as far as they did. First of all, Jesus wants it to be clear. By saying that you're not like your forefathers, you're admitting what your forefathers did. You're actually owning up to the fact that your forefathers did kill the prophets. So let's start there is what he's saying. Let's start there. If you're now admitting that your forefathers did kill the prophets and you're not like them, but let's start at that point. Why did they kill the prophets? And now, 
once we can get to the real fact of their own heart issues, don't you see you have the same heart issue? Because you're the ones now that are going to push and drive that I be the one hanging on the cross. But if it weren't for the grace of God, I wouldn't go to that cross, you would. Jesus gives a summation and a context to this. Because in verse 35, he says, So that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous bloodshed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. He's referring here to Abel as a prophet, a wise man who spoke truth. And when he spoke that truth and when he followed the truth of God in right worship, Cain got mad at him and killed him. Here's the first murder. And in the context of the Old Testament, the last murder in this worship sense was Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, 2 Chronicles 24, 20 through 22. He spoke against the people. Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord and do not prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he has also forsaken you. When they heard this, they conspired against him, and they killed Zechariah. They killed him. He just spoke words. Can't you just walk away from words and say, ah, he's a crazy person. He just spoke words. This past week in Phoenix, Arizona, there was a young military man who had gone to preach at a downtown square area in Phoenix. And at some point while he was preaching, someone, they don't even know who yet, but someone shot him and put him in the hospital. He's in very bad condition. It was just words. It was just words. Yelling at him from your car is one thing. Why, why was it that big of a deal? It tells you that words really do hurt and they kill people. And the words of the gospel bring real judgment to our souls. And ultimately, we kick against that judgment. And we don't want to hear it. Even in Luke's gospel, he records it this way, Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, and it was your forefathers who killed them. So you are witnesses and approve the deeds of your fathers, because it was they who killed them, and you built their tombs, or you build their tombs. He says, you're still doing this. You're still building the tombs of the prophets. You're still doing it. The only way for them to get rid of their ancestral roots is to deny themselves and follow Christ. But they are unwilling to hear the words of the Messiah. This is why he is pronouncing woe unto them. 
because they will not listen. They keep kicking against it because they want to do it their way. They keep saying to God, no, my way. Yeah, yeah, I've got your law, and I'm doing your law my way. My way. You know, Frank Sinatra sang that song all the way to hell. He did it his way. This is a great passage of woe and judgment to these Pharisees. Will we not consider this morning the context that the Lord Jesus is dealing with these men in their very own hearts? He's saying to them, where are you? What are you thinking? You're only thinking about doing it your way. You're not pausing. You're not stopping. Whoa, you're not stopping. You're not thinking about your need. That you cannot save yourself. You cannot be good enough to enter in before the one true living God. You are in need of a mediator. And you, even though you are a teacher of the law, you need a mediator. This becomes a great portion of this message, the lead-in to Jesus' teaching on what will soon hit the people of Jerusalem. It's not just for these Pharisees, it's for his disciples as well. He's preparing them for what soon will come. And for them to answer one question, genuinely, who will you trust and who will you follow? Will you keep doing it your way? Or will you trust and follow the one living God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ? It's a question we all have to ask. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we have been brought to the depth of our sin. Woe to us. For believers in the room, Lord, we dare not be like those hypocrites, and yet the only difference is, is will we repent? True believers are repenting believers. May we repent today, continuing in repentance, walking in repentance. Even as we come to the table this morning, confessing our sin and walking in repentance and faith in Christ alone. Lord, help us as believers not to come to this table and try to prove ourselves to be right in any way before you. But give us hearts of humility according to the work of your spirit, that we would come to this table in the truth of our need to confess our sin and repent of it and trust only in Christ alone to save us and keep us from that very debt and guilt of our sin. 
For those who are not believing, Lord, please deal with their hearts. Help them to see that they keep trying to do it their way. Trying to do these things in this life to offer them up as good works. And say, here God, look at what I did, accept it. Please don't let us do that. The unbeliever that's here today, don't let them keep going in that. Lord, if it be your will, save them, stop them. Lord, as we leave this place today in a little while, we ask for your continued mercy upon us. And we remember in that prayer of the Lord Jesus that we would pray and ask that we, we not be led into temptation and to deliver us from evil. We ask these things in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.